0: In this great country where you've got 350 million people, most problems are solved by people, not government. (laughs) But we forget about that.
1: This is Legacy, stories from older generations for insight into the world today. I'm Michelle Harvin. Last week we touched on addiction with Cecilia Hayden Smith. If you haven't listened, she talks about facing layers of discrimination, being an African-American gay woman, and how addictions became part of coping with trauma and sexual abuse. She mainly battled with food addiction, but as she describes, what she was addicted to wasn't really the problem. It was what she was running away from. But for Paul Malloy, addiction is at the crux of his story. It's what hurtled him to rock bottom. And like many others, losing everything is what eventually led to his recovery. But what's unusual about this recovery story is that Paul turned his lowest point into a global business. Paul is the CEO of Oxford House, a self-run recovery program with more than 2,000 recovery homes and 10,000 people in the program at any given time. Today, Paul and his wife use their own experience to keep their vision of Oxford House
0: going. My name is Paul Malloy, and I am 79 years old.
2: My name is Jane Malloy, and I'm 78 years old.
0: I married a young woman.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Paul and Jane met at the University of Vermont, a
1: state which they still have a soft spot for today. They fell in love and wasted no time
2: beginning their relationship. While we were in college, we got engaged at the summer before junior year, and in January 1960, we got married. And then in our senior year, a year later, our first daughter was born. Paul's aspirations to become a lawyer took them to
1: Washington, D.C., where he went to law school at Catholic University. But if there's one thing to know about Jane, it's that she's year, not the type to take to a back seat.
0: Night, Jane. First,
2: first of all, yeah. while, while Paul was going to law school at night, I was staying home with our child. And since he was working all day and going to law school at night, I helped him out by briefing his cases and doing notes for him so that when he came home, he'd have a quick dinner and then grab my notes to go off to class. And he told me about what his exams were and what it was all about. And I got thinking, I know this stuff better than he does. Mm -hmm. So I applied to law school and got accepted. And we were both then law students.
0: She took the LSAT, and uh, we went to the dean of the law school, and the dean's reaction was, golly gee, Mrs. Malloy, we already have a woman.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Really? But but they
2: took me anyway.
1: (laughs) So you were their second. In in, in this class, yes. Okay.
2: The usual choices for those of us in the 50s were go into teaching, become a nurse, become a secretary, become a housewife. And I was sort of the housewife. But in some ways, getting married so young and getting to experience Paul's law school really was really helpful to me because it made me decide, yeah, I can do this too. In third year of law school, and I was the only woman in the nationals in New York City when we were arguing. But I was a little bit distinctive because I was also eight and a half months pregnant.
1: Jane soon had their second child, while they were both in law school. After they passed the D.C. bar, Paul got a job as a legislative assistant for Vermont Senator Winston Prouty, a Republican like himself.
0: So I did lots of things as a staff member on the Senate side. And among other things I did uh, was that I learned how to drink and tended to drink too much and worked my way into becoming a full-fledged drunk.
2: Well, being quite effective
1: (laughs) as a staffer. Hugely effective. Paul was instrumental in helping set up the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and a little national rail service you might have heard of called Amtrak.
0: Well, I was a functional, a functioning alcoholic. As a matter of fact, I probably functioned better as an alcoholic than if I were not an alcoholic, because in negotiating with various interest groups to get things ad- adopted, I would drink them under the table, literally. Oh, And it was uh, part
1: of your strategy.
0: Well, it, it certainly was <laughs> part of trendy. my practice. I don't think it was a strategy. Oh, OK.
1: <laughs> by this time, Jane and Paul had a total of five children.
0: We were a productive young couple from Vermont.
1: Yes. <laughs> and Jane was finding success in her career as well.
0: Jane, by then, had become a lawyer with the Department of Commerce. And after just a short time there, when she'd done some reports and they said, hey, this is a smart woman, They picked her to go to the Woodrow Wilson School to uh, spend a year there at Princeton. And uh, she could bring her whole family, and that was me plus the five kids.
1: (laughs) Both of their careers were flourishing, and with five children, it would seem their marriage was also a success. But things were falling apart.
2: Paul was becoming a bit of a problem at that point.
0: Yeah, I could never tell whether I would be a happy drunk or whether I'd be a mean drunk. Mm -hmm. And I unfortunately often would try to kill Jane and uh, looking back on it it was it was typical spousal abuse by an alcoholic. but at the time I just thought I was right she was wrong <laughs> and uh, so Jane finally got sick of living with a uh, drunk after we'd come back from Princeton and had me committed to the psych ward and announced she was going to divorce me. she wanted a separation.
1: It was, was well-deserved. Paul was not having any of it, and being a lawyer himself, he knew exactly what to do. He immediately got in contact with a fancy lawyer from D.C. who sent out his partner.
0: The partner said, Paul, I'll spring you like this if you go into treatment for alcoholism. And I said, you don't understand. I'm not an alcoholic. And uh, he said, well, I talked to your wife, and and she's had it.
1: And so began the start of many negotiations between two seasoned
2: litigators. I went to court and got a commitment order. He was very much out of control.
0: I said, well, I never should have married a Protestant. I I married a Protestant, but she had become a Catholic. Nevertheless, she wasn't playing the game according to the rules. And so I said, look, the only way that uh, I would agree to a separation is if she sleeps with me on Thursday nights. And he said... No way. And I said, what's wrong with that? That sounds pretty reasonable. He said, well, the 12th, 13th, and 14th Amendments to the Constitution abolished slavery. So I fired him (laughs) and then went through several other lawyers. I had great access to lawyers.
1: But Paul's cheekiness would soon get him in trouble.
0: If you're in the psych ward uh, and you're a lawyer, you're popular because a lot of people are in the psych ward who don't want to be there. Mm -hmm. And so I became popular and I negotiated with the establishment to let us watch the 11 o'clock news. I said, not letting us watch the 11 o'clock news violates our civil rights. So they eventually let me change the rules and we could watch the 11 o'clock news. Then when I tried to push my luck and get the Johnny Carson show, which was popular at the time, they said, you've got to leave. And I said, you don't understand this terrible woman who's put me here. I have 289 more days on her Blue Cross Blue Shield. And they said, not here. And so I ended up on the streets of D.C. as a homeless person. For how long? Probably three or four months. It's a little hazy.
1: It was while Paul was homeless that he finally admitted to being an alcoholic after Jane threatened another psychiatric hospital.
0: The next morning, this lawyer I had fired the first time tracked me down on the streets of D.C., and said, Jane is going to have you committed to St. Elizabeth's Hospital. And as her work in poverty law and uh, her early days of practice, uh, she had tried to spring people from St. Elizabeth's because mental illness then was kind of a storage facility, quite like prisons are today. And uh, I knew that St. Elizabeth's was a bad place. So I said to this fellow, Ed, look, I'm an alcoholic. I need help. And he said, Paul, I just think you're a bastard. And I'm not going to help you unless you can go three days without a drink. So I went three days without a drink and called him up. And he verified that I'd been sober for three days. And then he got me into a treatment program in Montgomery County, Maryland, run by the county. And it was a 21-day program. And from that 21-day program, I went to the halfway house.
1: As for Jane, she didn't get to where she was by being fragile. After throwing out her alcoholic husband, she stayed focused on her ambitions. Once back from Princeton, she worked a high-level policy position as a lawyer for the Department of Commerce.
2: But at that point, I was trying to sort of rebuild my life, and I had to do it without him, which was something quite new for me. But uh,
1: Yeah, because you had been married.
2: Since... We'd, we'd been married young and yeah. had been married for 15 years at that point. This was in 1975, and we'd gotten married in 1960. Uh, so that was, that was interesting.
0: Meanwhile, uh, Jane was uh, saved from having a drunk husband at home right. and five children, <laughs> and the drunk husband would try to kill her whenever he got in that kind of a mood.
1: Even as a shunned drunk husband... Paul was actually quite lucky to have Jane as his wife. It was because of her dogged threats, Paul began treatment. And while in the halfway house, he encountered more luck.
0: I got a call from the Energy and Commerce Committee uh, to come in for an interview. And I wasn't going to go because I hadn't applied for any work on the Hill because uh, I felt everyone knew me as a notorious, pushy drunk. (laughs) And Father Bazan, who used to stop by the halfway house and buy a Coke in the morning and cheer up everybody and say, keep up the good work, fellows. He arrived one morning and all the guys in the halfway house said, Paul got called for a job interview and he's not going. He says, why not? And I said, well, I didn't apply there and I don't know why I got this call from this house committee and I have no money to buy gas. So he said, here's $20, go to the job interview. So I bought gas and went down to the job interview and thought to myself, I must have been drunk and in a blackout and went to the folks on the House side and said, "You Republicans owe me because I'm a great guy. (laughs) So I decided I had to be honest. And so when I was interviewed, I said to the person interviewing me, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober three months and I'm living in a halfway house. They said, that's okay. If we decide to hire you one drink, you're fired. And then The person interviewing me said, Jim Broyhill must think a lot of you. And I said, I don't know Jim Broyhill. Who the hell is Jim Broyhill? I said, well, he's a congressman from North Carolina.
1: Turns out Jim Broyhill didn't know Paul either, but vouched for him anyway.
0: He was walking through the office. And Lou said to Jim, "Uh, this is this fellow you recommended. Broyhill said, oh, if I recommend him, he must be good.
1: (laughs) And guess what?
0: They hired me. I became friends with Broyhill. To this day, neither Broyhill nor I know where my resume came from.
1: So by divine intervention, an abundance of luck, or powerful drunken persuasion, Paul got a job with the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Not too shabby for someone living in a halfway house and who was homeless just months beforehand.
0: And I was open about the fact to everybody. There was no anonymity about me being an alcoholic.
1: Then, without warning, the county decided to close the halfway house Paul was still living in. But you know the phrase, when God closes a door, he opens a window? I've never seen it happen in such clear representation as with Paul's life. After some self-pity and encouragement in the form of tough love from the old-timers at AA.
0: The 13 of us all chipped in to pay the rent, and to run it ourselves. And so that really was how the first Oxford House got going. In its
1: present state, you can find Oxford Houses around the world. 263 houses were created just last year, and around 400,000 people have gone through an Oxford house since its beginning in 1975. But before it became a worldwide network, it was Paul and a group of recovering addicts who just had the rug pulled from underneath them. They started building their own treatment.
0: We then worried about the fact that we wouldn't be able to do it because there was a therapeutic community then on the West Coast called Synanon. And Synanon was in all the papers because it was falling apart. Its leaders were fighting with each other.
1: Synanon was the first-ever self-run rehabilitation center with no doctors. It began in Santa Monica, California. And what happened is a pretty crazy story that I suggest you look into if you haven't heard of it. But essentially, it became a cult. The trouble started when its founders started moving beyond rehabilitation and wanted to create an alternate community.
0: There were all kinds of scandals because the group had gotten into all kinds of businesses, fixing cars, running a hotel, and they'd accumulated money, and they then started fighting with each other. That provided a valuable lesson to us because we said we didn't want that to happen for us. So we, right from the beginning, said, This group will never own any property, and today Oxford House owns no property. We accumulate no wealth, and it's because of that experience of when we were creating the first Oxford House.
1: This is an important thing to note about Oxford House as it relates to the vast landscape of treatment options today.
2: All Oxford Houses are rented, not owned, and so... Houses are all autonomous, and they pay nothing to Oxford House. Mm -hmm. A house established runs itself pays its own bills, and it's not a money-making. With that financial
1: understanding, they began creating the rulebook. First, they decided there would be no time limits for residents, which they implemented after seeing the results of their halfway house.
0: That first three months I'd been there, 11 guys had to leave because they'd had a time limit of six months, and 10 of the 11 had returned to drinking or using drugs within 30 days. If you're an alcoholic or a drug addict and you want to become a recovering person, you have to change behavior. But behavior change takes a different length of time for everybody. Some people get it in a month or so. Some people get it after going to a 28-day treatment program. So anyway, that first Oxford House uh, was created, and we did away with the time limit immediately.
1: Since all they had really known was AA, They began analyzing its structure to figure out what would work for their new organization.
0: AA has no officers and no rules. It's a very loose-knit organization. We were trying to model ourselves after AA. And I had known a guy from Vermont, because I'd been in and out of AA for years, whose sponsor was Bill Wilson, the founder of AA. So we called him and we went through the business of how the hell we're going to run this.
1: They also decided that if any person relapsed, they would be kicked out of the house.
0: Then we began to feel guilty because, while we threw the first guy out who relapsed. We soon filled the bed and we had no room at the end. And so we then rented a second house and then a third house. Out of guilt. Yeah, (laughs) Irish Catholic guilt.
1: (laughs) Guilt and luck may be the two predominant forces for Paul and Oxford House's success because soon houses began multiplying.
0: Within 10 years, there were 13 Oxford Houses in the Washington, D.C. area.
1: They started giving charters to the houses as they would open. The charter had three conditions.
0: It had to be democratically self-run and follow this Oxford House manual. Number two, each house had to be financially self-supporting. And number three, each house, if it was going to be an Oxford House, had to throw anybody out who drank or used drugs. And those three conditions have stayed the same.
1: Working on the Hill didn't hurt his cause either. A former congressman rented out his old house in Pennsylvania to become the first Oxford House outside of the D.C. area. The founders were worried it may not work since they wouldn't be around to monitor and keep it on track. But it turned out to be successful. And then news about Oxford House spread down Pennsylvania Avenue.
0: Ed Madigan, who was a congressman from Illinois, called me in 1988. He then told the story to Ronald Reagan. And Reagan's reaction was, golly gee, does Nancy know about this?
1: (laughs) At the time, Nancy Reagan was leading the Just Say No anti-drug campaign.
0: And the next thing we knew, a Dr. Ian McDonald from the Reagan White House asked to visit one of the houses that we had at Chevy Chase Circle. And he visited the house, which was a 13-man house, and he said, when did you guys have your last vacancy? And they said, oh, we had a vacancy in March. And he said, how many people applied? And they said, oh, 22 or 23. And he said, you just took one? And they said, yeah, uh, that's all we had was one vacancy. He said, what happened to the other 22 or 23? And they said, we don't know. But it takes us two and a half years to save $5,000, which is what's needed to rent a house in this neighborhood.
1: And so the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1988 gets stuffed with a the provision.
0: that said every state that received federal money for alcoholism and drug addiction had to set up a revolving loan fund to loan groups of six or more recovering alcoholics $4,000 in order to rent a house to, in effect, create an Oxford house.
1: So it was built into the law?
0: Yes. (laughs) And it was mandated.
1: 1988 marked a time of change for Paul. It was the year the Reagan administration took notice of their work. The organization basically became mandated into law across the nation. And perhaps most importantly, after 13 years...
0: Jane and I decided to get remarried in uh, 1988. A couple of years earlier, Jane had begun talking to me again. <laughs> and uh, we actually began dating. During the hiatus, most of the girls I dated, I made sure their name was Jane. But uh, <laughs> this was the real Jane. <laughs> and, uh, Is that true? Yes. Jane
2: 1, is your secretary referred
0: to. Me. Yeah, my secretary on the Hill used to uh, I'd say, who is it? And she'd say, Jane 1, or, or she'd say Jane 2. And, uh, however, they were all nice people. And, uh, uh,
1: and when they got remarried, Jane moved in with Paul, who wasted no time in turning Jane's old place into an Oxford house. But things weren't about to slow down shortly after the mandate was put in place.
0: That created all kinds of chaos because states were saying, how the hell are you going to loan $4,000 to a group of freshly recovering drunks and druggies and expect them to pay it back? And so with that, we had to create a central office to convince states that, yes, drunks and druggies really would repay the money (laughs) and they really could have self-sufficiency and run their own recovery houses. And that Oxford House concept had a lot of advantages.
1: Another thing to keep in mind is that Oxford Houses are just houses. They aren't buildings or specially built rehabilitation centers. It's a family home in a neighborhood with other family homes, usually in a nice part of town. And as you might have guessed, people weren't too happy when an Oxford House decided to move in next door.
0: People in a good neighborhood will say, hey, you can't be here. You're a treatment facility or you're whatever. And we said, yeah, we're just like a family. If you let a family here, we can be here. Mm -hmm. At one point, we were in federal court in 14 different jurisdictions.
1: One of those cases reached the Supreme Court. And it may not surprise you to hear, they won. The court ruled that under the Fair Housing Act, recovering addicts are a protected class of people who cannot be discriminated against which is something they fought hard for because Paul believes it's one of the reasons Oxford House works.
0: Well, if you're living in a good neighborhood, you don't want to give that up easy. So you think twice before you relapse. You enjoy living in a nice house with a big television and lots of channels on the cable TV.
1: They had to keep fighting to keep Oxford House the way it was because it was such a new concept. The very reasons people felt uneasy about the process, putting the homes in good neighborhoods, allowing the houses to be self-run, was why it worked. One early study from Catholic University found,
0: 80% of the folks who moved into Oxford stayed clean and sober. And we said, my God, what are we doing wrong? We're losing 20%. He said, you don't understand. Normally, a place would be happy if they had 20% that stayed clean and sober. That word began to spread. But the numbers
1: don't tell the story of those people. Paul believes Oxford House works
0: because... They become part of a functional family. I mean, if you were like me and you first move in from the streets, initially you reject the idea of having to be there. <laughs> and you reject the idea that you can't drink or use drugs or they're going to throw you out. And then the folks will say, come to the weekly house meeting. There's a business meeting every Weep. They follow parliamentary procedure, rob rules of order, and uh, it looks like an IBM meeting. <laughs> and uh, I think that that begins to suck people in to this new and different lifestyle. Now, the nice thing about alcoholism and drug addiction is that they're egalitarian diseases. So you get white and black and rich and poor, fat and skinny, has and never worse, <laughs> And they're all thrown together into a house. And the new guy who comes in, he goes to that first house meeting. He's likely to say, well, whatever you guys want to do. And they say, oh, no, you got to vote. Do you want us to buy a bigger television set or not? And he has to vote. Then a vacancy occurs. And so this new guy who's come in, they'll say, "Okay, Charlie, which one of these three applicants should we take? And he'll say, I don't care. It's up to you guys. But no, they say, you've got to decide. We all have to decide. And Charlie votes, Sam should come in. Well, all of a sudden, Charlie is postponing taking a drink or using drugs because he wants to set a good example for this new guy that he's voted in. <laughs> and so he gets sucked in more and more. And what happens is sobriety's habit forming. The longer you stay clean and sober, the longer you start doing these new things and feeling good about it, You know, the more apt you are to stay queen and sober. Also, right from the beginning of Oxford House, we decided if you couldn't have a good time not drinking and using drugs, you'd go back to drinking and using drugs. So there's kind of a fraternity or sorority environment within each of these houses.
2: Without booze.
0: Without booze, without drugs.
1: Paul emphasizes that addiction is a people problem and should be addressed as such, especially right now as America battles an opioid epidemic that shows no signs of abating. According to the CDC, 91 Americans die every day due to an opioid overdose, and nearly half of these deaths involve a prescription. The Trump administration created an opioid commission and declared a public health emergency in October. But what occurred to me when I heard Paul talking about Oxford House and many rehab facilities today, a lot boils down to money.
0: When you look at the statistics, you find that less than 20% of the people who go off to treatment stay clean and sober. And the treatment industry begin to say, well, relapse is part of the disease. (laughs) And that automatically becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy.
1: Paul says by saying relapse is part of the process, treatment centers can guarantee themselves a revolving door of business.
0: It's a sad commentary. And it kind of illustrates the fact that we have a terribly balkanized system. I mean, they are fly-by-night operators. We don't have houses in Florida, for example. But there's lots of recovery houses that are really hustlers. Mm-hmm. And they don't focus much on recovery. And many of them take kickbacks from treatment places. And there was a scandal a year ago where... Recovery homes were charging insurance companies $425 to test whether or not somebody is on drugs.
1: But money is wrapped up in the opioid epidemic. Despite calls for a crackdown, the opioid industry is still growing. It's projected to be worth over $17 billion by 2021, up from $10 billion in 2015. One study even found that one in 12 doctors received an incentive from companies selling opioids. But opioid distributors aren't going unscathed. Currently, there are plenty of lawsuits against pharmaceutical companies for knowingly putting patients in danger. Ohio's attorney general filed a lawsuit against numerous big companies, and similar lawsuits exist in West Virginia, Illinois, Mississippi, New York, and California.
0: One of the problems of big pharma is that they have a vested interest in being able to sell something. They're just good old Republican businessman. That's life. But (laughs) the problem, if what you're selling is causing harm, you shouldn't want to sell more of it. If you go to the dentist, the dentist gives you a 30-day supply of Percocet, there's something wrong with that. You know, why not give you Tylenol, which is not addictive?
1: And today we have methadone clinics and other drugs that help addicts wean off of harder drugs.
0: There is no magic pill or magic bullet for fixing alcoholism or drug addiction. Methadone, which was put into use in the early 60s, was part of a harm reduction scheme. And methadone is better than heroin because heroin gives you a good feeling for about four hours. Methadone lasts for 24 hours. Still, it boils down to can you fix a drug addiction by substituting a drug? That's tough to do. Because even if you succeed at that, it requires behavior change. Now, in Oxford House, there are folks who are on Suboxone and folks who are on methadone. But the atmosphere within Oxford House is to say, use that as a transition.
1: The debate around medication-assisted treatment, like methadone, is complex and sticky. Because drug addiction is a disease, using medication makes sense. And many people have fought hard against stigma in order to bring things like methadone clinics into towns where there is little to no treatment help. But success can mean varying things. Around half of those on Suboxone reduced or stopped using painkillers. However, this rate drops dramatically to around 8% when the use of Suboxone stopped. Likewise, a rehabilitation clinic can claim success if someone completes a 20- or 30-day treatment and not take into account what happens afterward. But Paul thinks if anyone can be a national crisis, it's the U.S.
0: You know, we have houses in Ghana. We've got some houses in Australia, some in Canada. But this notion of self-help is unique to America. To Tocqueville in 1835, when he went around the country, he uses the example of a tree falls across the trail. And he said, these Americans just come along and they all get together and say, let's get the damn tree out of the way. In Europe at that time, you, which was very futile, you had to get the permission from the landowner, the permission. You had to go through all kinds of bureaucracy. Well, there's something about the American tradition and heritage that encourages AA creation 1935, NA's creation in 1953, Oxford House 1975. How come— these self-help things come about. I think that's part of the American character. We probably are going to go back to more of this self-help. I think we kind of slid into saying President Obama, President Bush, President Trump, got to solve all the problems. And now we're learning, better be careful of depending on a president too much. Better be careful about depending on Congress too much. Have you ever thought about doing it yourself? Not a bad idea. And you got the freedom to do it in America.
1: Legacy is produced by me, Michelle Harvin. Remember to subscribe to keep up to date on all our episodes. Check out my Twitter at Michelle Harvin to find all the links and to see some cool extra stuff like pictures and videos of our incredible storytellers. Or you can go to com to see all that and more. Logo design by Elise Harvin, tech by Chris Herbert, and thanks to everyone who has helped in one way or another. Thanks for listening, and remember to tune in next week. You don't want to miss it.